Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a weekly podcast bringing readers and writers of Australian fiction together. I'm Claudine Tanellis. As an avid reader and passionate advocate for Australian fiction, I make it my mission to spotlight local talent. So if you're looking for your next read or simply want to learn more about the Australian literary scene, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and relax. This episode is brought to you by HarperCollins Australia. Ah, another day and yet another interview with an award-winning Aussie author. I've had a fabulous run this year interviewing two of the five current winners of the Banjo Prize. And for those who don't already know, the Banjo Prize is an annual competition run by HarperCollins Australia to uncover new Australian writing talent in the commercial fiction space. And listeners, today I have the pleasure of interviewing the very latest Banjo Prize winner, Steph Vizard. Steph won the 2022 prize for her then unpublished manuscript. And less than 12 months later, that book called The Love Contract is about to be published. I have no doubt, no doubt at all, that readers will fall in love with this charming story about enemy neighbours Zoe and Will, who reluctantly come to the realisation that they each had the power to help the other one out of a difficult situation. The question is, of course, will they and what are the consequences? Now, to find out if they do or they don't, you'll have to read the book. But in the meantime, you can enjoy listening to Steph chat about her debut novel, The Love Contract. Welcome to the podcast, Steph. Thanks so much for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so it's great to be here. Oh, I'm so delighted to hear that, Steph. Thank you. Now, I wanted to say congratulations on winning the 2022 Banjo. How are you feeling? Oh, it's been such a fun ride. Almost a year is creeping up since I found out I was the winner of the prize and was getting published and what an exciting year that's been. So it's been a really exciting journey. So with publication day so close now, has it sunk in that you actually won and that your book is about to be released into the world? I think it creeps up on you in stages. There was obviously the day I got where well, I got two phone calls I got it was a sort of an ordinary day I was home with my daughter and I got a phone call from an unknown number and it was Catherine Milne who is a publisher at HarperCollins to say I'd been shortlisted for the Banjo Prize and I was just meeting a new babysitter and I think she thought I was the most excitable person she'd ever met um, because she didn't know why I was so sort of frazzled and upbeat Um, And then about a week later, I was in my office at the time, which was a high rise sort of office tower in Collins Street in Melbourne, just doing my my work. And I got another unknown number call. And it was Anna Valdinger, who became the books publisher at HarperCollins. And I just said, oh, Anna, like that phone call I got last week was the most amazing phone call. And it was because I just sort of thought, oh, well, that's the shortlist. That's amazing. What a confidence boost. I'm sort of headed in the right direction. What a great sort of thing to have happened. And she goes, well, if you like that phone call, you're really going to like this one because you won and we're publishing it. And so my husband actually worked in the office building on the other side of the street. So I texted him and he came out and we had a hug in the street and it was all very exciting. And he actually bought me a little toy banjo to put on my desk and then I guess yeah that the stages have been you know the first time you get the sort of typeset copy and you print it out and it looks like a real book and 
then I had a bit of a magical moment when I just had a baby and I got home from the hospital and it was the same day that my advanced reader copy arrived. So I have a photo of my, you know, three-day-old baby and my ark in the bassinet together. And then the box arrives with the finished copies and then, you know, you, people read it and start to say things about it. So I, it, it doesn't happen overnight, but it happens in all these exciting stages. So I know it's not feeling real, but yes, it sort of is too. <laughs> oh, that's such a beautiful story. And I think it never gets old for me hearing you know, how wonderful and how life-changing a, a call like that can be. Oh, totally. Because books have given me more joy than anything apart from friends and family, I guess. It's yeah. reading is my favorite thing. And rom-coms in particular, I remember being on a beach holiday with my family when I was, I think, 11 or 12. And I'd run out of all my YA books to read. And so my mum gave me her book and said I could read it and it was a rom-com they would have called it Chicklet back in the day um, and it was a book by Catherine Elliott who I still love and I just remember like it was like love at first read I just couldn't believe how fantastic these books were and I have not stopped reading them since and it sort of became a dream to try and make other people feel the way that these amazing books had made me feel so yeah so Steph can you tell me how you came to submit to the banjo had you been aiming or working towards it or was it more of a spur of the moment decision it was a bit of a I guess stop start journey I did an English degree and after that I was working in London and I did a Curtis Brown creative course for three months and had a ball I was sort of 22 and and life was fun and I learned so much and then a bit of life happened I started studying law and started working and fell in love and moved back to Australia and just all the things and years sort of passed and I mean writing was still something I loved doing but maybe hadn't been a focus and then I had a baby and was on maternity leave and I had a few years earlier I'd taken a few months off work to spend time with my husband who was working in the US and for the first time in a few years I'd had a bit of time just to sort of think and read and I started listening to podcasts like yours and and, pod, and podcasts with authors and reading some craft books and thinking up ideas and sort of I had a list of ideas that I thought could work for stories but then when I had my four-month-old baby a few years later I just suddenly felt like I had something to say and I just sat down at my laptop and I started writing and over the course of my maternity leave, I finished the draft and then I had a manuscript assessment done and then kept editing during my daughter's naps on my non-working day. And I'd been aware of the Banjo Prize. And so I sort of worked towards having my draft in, in good shape by the time the deadline came around and sent it off. But, you know, you're always hopeful about these things, but you know that there's so many talented people around and you never know about anything. So it was definitely something I knew about and thought was an amazing opportunity. But I think for me, it was sort of that period of labor I sort of really got serious about it for the first time yeah there's, there are lots of very talented Australian writers out there but you're clearly one of them thank you <laughs> there are so many Australian authors I can't get enough of them at the moment fantastic reading stories that are I felt like I grew up reading a lot of stories set in the UK or Ireland or more recently maybe America but at the moment to be able to read the stories you love in places you know is so exciting 
I couldn't agree with you more. And one of the very reasons why I started this podcast, more and more, we are coming into our own here in Australia and writing stories that people want to read. Well, that's so good to hear from you. That's obviously across the, the across the industry, but I completely agree. And actually, with the first draft, I wrote it not set anywhere in particular, really. I sort of set it in, I mean, a few things have to exist in the city for the book to work. You know, it needs to be a big city. It needs to be somewhere where there are corporate jobs and where there's a childcare drought, but it wasn't, it wasn't set in Melbourne. And then I sort of went into that. And by the end, it became one of my favourite bits about the book. And, and one of the favourite bits was we're writing those really specific places and seeing my city suddenly through a writer's lens, which was really exciting. Steph, like like me, you trained as a lawyer and, in fact, you still work as a corporate lawyer in Melbourne, as you indicated before. Had you always had this desire in you to write? Yeah, I think in the sense that, as I mentioned before, I just loved these books so much and, and the dream to one day be able to do that just felt magical. And I actually, in my second year of my undergrad, I was invited to a 21st of a, of a friend. Um, and it turned out that the co-host of the 21st mum was Catherine Elliott, who'd been the author who had sort of planted the seed in the beginning. And my friends knew how much I'd loved her and of course pushed me towards her. And yeah, I got to meet her. And I think when you, I was the first time I'd met an author in real life. And if you can sort of see it, you can dream it sort of thing. And she was lovely. And it was like, why are you reading my books when you're meant to be reading Shakespeare and Beowulf? And I was like, I think they're just as amazing. <laughs> and then I really enjoy being a lawyer too. And I think that we live in a time where you can be many things. My favorite colleagues, you know, lawyer or otherwise, have been ones that have a lot of different interests, you know, whether it's a musical instrument or they're, you know, part of a choir or they're really sporty and do some kind of team sport. Like I love hearing about people I work with and their passion. So yeah. All right. So you've given us a little bit of a hint about how you came to start writing the love contract, but was there a particular seed of inspiration that got you motivated to write Zoe and Will's story? Yeah, it came from a few places. My now husband's work started to offer all their male employees four months of parental leave and were also encouraging their male employees to use that full entitlement and really selling it as a great thing for your career. And I guess that sort of planted a seed. And at the same time, I was reading or listening to stories of women that were choosing to have children on their own, which I thought was so inspiring and empowering. I had those two ideas sort of, you know, in the back of my mind. And then, as I mentioned, I had a daughter and began looking for childcare myself and was shocked by how difficult it was to find, you know, local great childcare and I thought, oh, this is crazy. We actually live in a world where it is totally possible that you might pretend to be in a relationship to get some childcare or to get ahead in your career. And so that was sort of the the basis of the story. Now, I've given a very vague idea of what the love contract is about in my intro, but for listeners whose interest has already been well and truly peaked, can you tell us more about the story? 
Yeah, of course. So it's the story of Zoe, who's in her 30s, and she's a single mum and it's time to return to work, which she has to do. But the issue is she can't find childcare, as I mentioned before. So enter Will, who is her next door neighbour, who is her nemesis, her gorgeous nemesis. And after a bit of a mishap, Will's boss mistakenly thinks that he is the father of Zoe's daughter. And they agree to pretend to be in a relationship for three months. So that Zoe can get some childcare and Will can get ahead in his career by taking paternity leave, which his firm's really keen for him to do because they want to look progressive. And obviously the rom-com begins there. (laughs) Yeah, an absolutely wonderful premise for the story. Now, I don't, I honestly don't think that you could have created two more distinctly different characters. Zoe is the antithesis of Will in terms of personality and outlook on life. I mean, I've met and worked with lawyers like Will. I can see (laughs) his total focus, his drive, his ambition to make partner and the sacrifices he needs to make sure that that happens. And equally, I can see why Zoe made the decisions that she did and what motivated her. So tell me about your inspiration for each of these characters. Yeah, I think that they come from versions of people that I've seen. Will is definitely someone I think we all see in our lives, which is the person that has doggedly pursued a career and a really high pressure career, but at no point thought about why he's doing it or if it's the right thing for him. And I think that particularly, you know, in an environment where you work really hard and a lot is demanded of you, then that can become your whole life before you've even really ever stopped to think what you want your life to look like. I think too, with burnout so prevalent at the moment, there are a lot of people that are, or might think about taking that pause to think about why they are pursuing and spending so much time on what they're doing. And then I think Zoe comes from a place which I think a lot of us sort of feel when we're heading towards our 30s or in our 30s, which is you have to sort of, there is a bit of a time where you have to think about what you want life to look like and really make some decisions and and be quite deliberate all of a sudden about what you want with your career and what you want with with kids or no kids. And that's definitely something that me and my friends came up against and had to talk about. So I think that was sort of where they came from. It's an unusual arrangement that Zoe and Will enter into. I mean, let's be fair. I mean, to ask somebody that you don't particularly like (laughs) to look after your child. But their reasons for doing so, I thought, were so plausible, entirely plausible. And we've already discussed some of those aspects. But I thought it said a great deal about the society that we're living in today. Can you talk? a little bit more about how they came to be in the situation that they're in. I don't think anyone that reads the paper will be surprised to know whether they've got kids or not, that there is a bit of a childcare drought happening in Australia and in lots of countries around the world. And I think that women's participation in the workforce and the availability of childcare haven't necessarily aligned as much as we need them to. I think that it's just such a, a missing piece, you know, when you've got two people or one person in a relationship and they have to work or want to work, then quality, amazing childcare just has to be part of the equation. And we're lucky enough to have that for our daughter. And it's an absolute game changer. I mean, as much as it was helpful to use for a a premise for a rom-com, I would like it not to exist. (laughs) I like to think that the premise will be obsolete, (laughs) not (laughs) too distant future. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. 
You've suggested in this book that being a family man makes Will inherently more likable or trustworthy, perhaps, as a candidate for partnership. But the kind of hours and hard work needed to get Will to this level are ludicrous and would make the realities of having a family near impossible for him to juggle. And for Zoe, going back to work and her success is predicated on her ability to work like she doesn't have any family responsibilities. You're a working lawyer, Steph. Have you struggled with continuing your career and balancing your family responsibilities like Zoe? Oh, I think it's something that me and my friends talk about constantly, you know, how we're trying to be all the things. And I think if anyone puts pressure on ourselves, it's ourselves in most of the cases, because of course we want to work like we did before we had kids and we want to be parents like on Bluey, but women just can't perfectly do all the things. And I think that one of the things that is just so crazy to me is the motherhood penalty, which is, you know, when a woman becomes a mother, they're deemed to be, you know, unreliable or less good and committed to their job and all those negative things and then can get overlooked for promotions and their career can stall. And men, the opposite happens. They get the fatherhood bonus where suddenly they're deemed to be more reliable and more invested in their career. And I think that that is the irony of the situation that Will is in because he is taking the leave because, you know, he wants to be seen to be that, to get that fatherhood bonus and and to be seen to be a family man that is super likable. But the reality is if he was in a relationship and taking on his share of the mental load and, and care, he wouldn't be able to do the job the way he's been doing it. And I also think that we're in a real transition period where men want to, in a lot of cases, be so much more involved with their kids and be so much more hands-on and be available and do pickups and drop-offs and sick days. But it's still in that sort of period where maybe we're not quite there yet in accepting that and letting them. So I think that's interesting territory too. I loved the way that you uh, described the motherhood penalty. And that was something that I definitely came across when I was working. It's obviously not an overt thing. It's a very subtle thing, but in many different ways, you are penalized um, because you you can't stay back and you can't do the things that anybody that doesn't have children can do. Yeah. And I even like kind of address that with Zoe's best friend at work, who is nice to her. And she was like, why are you being nice to me? I'm a working mom. Like we are the bottom of the food chain. Like she can't (laughs) believe that someone's coming into bat for her. And the other thing is I wanted to write about being a mom in your thirties or a parent in your thirties and a working parent and like show, you know, all the bits, but also not make it like doom and gloom either to show the joy and to show how funny it can be and you know when you get it right how amazing it can be because I felt sometimes when I had my daughter I was just desperate to read something that showed life as it was but was also entertaining and upbeat and a bit funny Yeah, absolutely. And you've done that in spades. Um, Now, one of the interesting themes you address in this novel is sperm donation and women like Zoe using sperm donors to fulfill their dreams of becoming a mother. Was that something you specifically wanted to explore in this novel? I thought it was something that I had been reading about more women choosing to do. And I thought it was fascinating as a trend. That's probably not the right word, but sort of an option that women were really open and proud about talking about, which I just thought was fantastic. Fantastic. And I really related in reading these stories to that moment where suddenly you knew you wanted kids and it was like a overwhelming feeling that it was like, I'm ready. I want to do this. 
And I really experienced that where suddenly I was like, oh, yep, this is something I want. And I had a partner at the time. And so we've had kids together, but I love that if that hadn't been the case, that I would have had that option. I would have had, you know, the ability to choose a different way to create a family. So yeah, it was something that I was really excited to write about and and do some research on. Yeah. So speaking of the research, I imagine that would have been interesting. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. So I listened to some podcasts where people who talk about their stories and, and articles. And I even delved into some of the articles on the demographics of single parents and Yeah, that wasn't particularly upbeat reading about the real challenges. And it's been really exciting to see that even since I wrote draft one, the supports have already changed in Australia. And there are, as I understand it, some ways that a sole parent can get access to more paid leave and things like that. So it's good to know that we're heading in the right direction. But yes, I definitely did some research into into that area of the book. Steph, I loved the examples of legal drafting in this book. (laughs) I'm glad as a lawyer to hear that. Thank you. (laughs) I'm very much aligned with Will on on this front. Love myself a good, clean, easy to read contract. That must have been fun for you. It was so joyful to write the stupid contractual drafting. I mean, I'm not a lawyer that does a lot of contracting. So I had to sort of you know, blow the dust off those skills a bit. You know, Will, who wants to make everything black and white and clear and in dot points, and Zoe, who thinks the whole thing is hilarious and just can't wait to sort of add in stupid clauses or, you know, Latin, what she thinks might be lawyer language and put an ipso facto between everything and define, you know, stupid terms. It was so much fun. And it it became a real way of getting sort of into those characters too, because when I was, I could just hear them when I was writing those bits, you know, their voices just jumped out so clearly. So that was a really fun. And then I couldn't help myself. There are a few jokes in there for lawyers. Like (laughs) I don't think anyone else is going to laugh at the joke about it being a deed poll versus a contract (laughs) apart from the lawyers reading it. So apologies to everyone else. That one is for the lawyers. (laughs) The nerd in me loved it. (laughs) Steph, you're obviously cognizant of the growing appetite for romance novels, particularly books like yours. Now, BookTok is driving a growing demand for smart and entertaining romantic stories. One need only look at the success of authors like Emily Henry, Tessa Bailey and Ali Hazelwood in the US and even our very own Sally Thorne to see Mm. how popular this genre has become. Did that factor into your desire to write a romantic comedy or was this just the story you wanted to write? Well, I think it's fantastic that this genre is having a moment that I hope is a lot more than a moment and that readers on TikTok and, you know, Bookstagram are really obsessed with certain authors that I love too. I think for me, I fell in love with women's commercial fiction, what would now be called romance or romantic comedies at such a young age that I think I missed the memo that I was ever meant to be embarrassed by it. Like I've just always been an unashamed fan of it. I was actually giggling when I was thinking of my undergrad final year dissertation, which was literally a defense of just following your taste on books. So I've just been so excited seeing the genre explode because 
selfishly, it's just meant that I've just had an endless array of books to constantly read. You know, it's, it's sometimes it feels like it's hard to keep up with all the amazing stuff that's coming in. So for me, it was not ever a question about romantic comedy or not, because I just absolutely love them. What I also love, Steph, about what you just said is the fact that you're clearly a very clever woman. And I have spoken to numerous clever women who not only enjoy writing romance or romantic comedy, but love reading it as well. And I think it says something, I mean, there's been such snobbery around this genre for so very long, but I think it really does lift people out of this thinking that this is something to be ashamed of. Yeah. And I think that uh, romantic comedies are a bit of a Trojan horse. I think they're funny because they've got the comedy in them and they're romantic. So you kind of know how they're going to end and and that the romance is going to be front and center. But I think they deal with the stuff that is women's lives, which is just endlessly fascinating and all the different shades of um, complex. And I think that Actually, some of these books deal with really big issues and are really substantive. I've loved seeing some of the smartest people that I know be really open about it and get into this conversation. Like, I don't know if you've ever listened to the Sentimental Garbage podcast. It's an English one and basically two very funny, clever people talk for often hours about something that is tends to be loved by women and has been dismissed. And they say why it is amazing and why it shouldn't be. And I just love that that's where we're at at the moment. I couldn't agree with you more. I'm absolutely loving this resurgence of interest, if I can call it that, even though it's typically been one of the highest selling genres particularly of the last few years. The numbers are staggering. The numbers are staggering. Indeed. Indeed. Okay. So Steph, if there was one thing that you would like readers to take away from this novel, what would it be? Yes. I remember when I was sort of had the idea uh, a few years ago for the book and I was chatting to a friend and she said, you know, imagine this book was published in three years, you know, what would you be proud of? And I must have thought about it because I found an entry in my journal that I wrote after that. And I said, if I was published in three years, I would want something that was entertaining, something that showed the lives of women as I know them, and something that's romantic and a little bit funny. And I think it was almost three years later, I got the call to say I had the publishing contract, which when I saw that entry in my journal, I was like, what? I am really proud of this book. So that's what I would really hope that someone would take away from it. Steph, you know that there are lots of writers that listen to this podcast. And I was wondering, given your experiences to date, if you had any tips to offer those who are still looking for homes for their manuscript or just about the publishing process in general. Absolutely. And I have like absorbed so many of tips from this podcast and others. My sort of bit to add into the the mix is two sort of contradictory things. Firstly, and it was something that I did a writing course that was taken by Jenny Colgan, who writes lots of romances. And her just big thing was just get the words down, just, just, and in her sort of Scottish way, just, just do the words, just get the words down. And she used to say, fix them in post, you know, if you've got words there, you can fix them. And when I was writing the love contract, I um, would just, you know, set a word target. And I think it was Sally Hepworth. 
who had this trick where if you're, you know, trying to write a thousand or 2000 words a day, break them up into 350 word chunks. And then you just cross them off. And I don't know, the dopamine kick keeps you going and it worked for me. And so I think my first bit of advice is just, yeah, get words down because you can't do much unless there are words on the page. But conversely, I think really focus on learning about story. And I think that so many craft books are ultimately saying very similar things about story. And, and I think it's about finding the one, the book that explains it to you in the way that your brain has that aha moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think keep searching for, you know, keep listening to writers talking, keep reading the craft books, keep doing the courses until you find those wisdoms that just connect with your brain and you really understand story. So what's next for you? Are you working on something else at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to just keep telling these types of stories forever. It's been so much fun. So the plan is, yeah, just to do exactly that. Oh, I love that. And Steph, if listeners wanted to learn more about you and your book or books, as the case may be, where can they find you? Yeah, I have a website. That's my name. And then I'm on Instagram at Steph E, as in the letter, Visard. Fantastic. Steph, The Love Contract was an absolutely delightful read. I loved every moment getting to know Zoe and Will, and I feel certain readers will too. I wish you every success with the upcoming launch. Thank you so very much for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun. That's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please drop me a line via my webpage at claudinetonellis.com, via Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Alternatively, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Until next time, happy reading.